All right, we are in Acts chapter 12. As you know, if you are here last week, and chapters 11 and 12 are where things begin to get pretty hairy for the new church. There are amazing things happen. Miracles are happening. Literally thousands of people in short order have decided that they want to serve Jesus. They want to follow Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And if you know your Bibles, uh, often when there is this kind of growth, numeric growth in Christianity, and, and I, would, I could argue also depth of, of walk with Jesus, there's also a proportional rise in persecution, which is exactly what is happening here. So Herod is king at the time. This is uh, Herod Agrippa I, and he has just executed James. So this is, this is not James, the brother of Jesus, who, who wrote the book in the letter, the letter in that name. This is James, who was one of the 12 disciples. James, who was one of the three, along with Peter and John in Jesus's, you know, his, his inner circle. And James is, without a doubt, one of the most influential Christians at the time. So this loss would have been huge for the early church. What we know about Agrippa, you can probably just tell this from the text. We have other, other data outside of the Bible to, to affirm this, that he is your typical politician. He, he's, he's concerned with staying in power. It doesn't seem like he has any real moral compass. And he knows that if he's to stay in, the, in power, he needs to make these Jews happy. He sees that these Jews, they don't like this Jesus movement. So he decides, I'm going to make them happy by executing one of the top leaders in this new Christian movement. So he does that with, with James, and it, and it seems like he then stepped back for a moment just to kind of see, you know, read the polls. How, how, did, how did this go? The Jews liked this, and then he says, all right, I'm going to execute Peter as well. So he has Peter arrested, but he can't execute him right away because they're in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's, you know, it's not kosher to make an execution during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, so he decides that he's going to imprison Peter until the feast is over and then he'll have him executed. So Peter is arrested. He is placed in about as heavy a security as you could imagine. Uh, we read that not only is he placed in prison, he is guarded by four squadrons of soldiers, like he is the winter soldier or something. He, there are soldiers outside of the cell. There are literally soldiers in the cell chained, it seems like, to his arms. They're chained to him so Peter does not get away. And I was thinking about this this week, just to kind of put it in perspective, at least a little bit. Imagine if the culture of the state of Florida was such that everybody was really against Christians. And we have a governor, and he or she decides, well, the, the tide is against Christians, so I, I, I want to make people happy. I'm going to be against Christianity too. And the governor has Kurt Bowerman executed and me put in jail. Kurt Bowerman is, of course, our longest tenured and oldest elder, wisest probably too. And, you know, and, and so I, he's dead. I'm in maximum security prison, which still doesn't get quite to the dire nature because we didn't plant this church and we're not giving leadership to all of Christianity the way that Peter and James are. But hopefully it gets emotionally, you know, us somewhere into the realm of how these people feel. I hope so, if we have any friends here, Kurt. But, but I, hope, I mean, it is, it is a, a serious situation, not just politically for them, but emotionally, their friends, their leadership are being threatened. And as all of this happens, what I want to really focus on is what's happening in verse five. In the midst of all this craziness, we read, 
So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is a passage about corporate prayer. This is a passage about the power of a church coming together and petitioning God for something that is so far beyond anything that they can possibly accomplish on their own. And I think this is a timely passage for us because even amidst some very encouraging things happening in this church, I would say that corporate prayer is probably one of the greatest weaknesses we have in this church. I actually had, a, had another pastor a couple weeks ago he, uh, text me and say, hey, what do y'all do for corporate prayer? I, I feel like I, we, our church wants to grow in this area. And you know, I, I couldn't in good conscience tell him that we have anything you know, amazing going on. We have, we have one faithful prayer group led by Dan Humbert at 8.30 in the morning uh, to pray for our Sunday services. But outside of that small faithful group, I didn't have anything to really tell them about. So hopefully every week when we come to a passage, I am having some mic problems this morning. Hopefully every week when we come to a passage, we have reason to believe that God wants to say something specific to us. But as I'm in this passage, I feel like this is especially so this week. So this is a passage we need to pay attention to, a passage that we have a lot to learn from. And I want to walk through this passage and I want to do something just slightly different than I normally do. So first, I'm going to want to zoom out kind of over the text, maybe away from the text. I want to look at why it is that we don't pray as a church, some of the reasons we don't pray, and then I really want to dive into the passage and see what can we learn about corporate prayer from this passage. So first, some of the reasons we don't pray. I think it's true in our church. I think it's true in most churches. I think it's true in the early church that we tend to not pray until a crisis comes into our personal lives or into our corporate lives. This is certainly the impetus of this passage here. But visible crises are not the only time that we're supposed to be coming together and praying individually or praying corporately because what the Apostle Paul tells us is that we're always as a church in a time of crisis. Even, even when we don't see the crisis in our physical midst, we're told that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but that our battle is against spiritual forces, plural, the way that he writes it, spiritual forces that are always coming against us, forces that want our leaders to fall, forces that want our children to, to flee, forces that want us to be enamored with literally anything other than Jesus Christ. These kinds of forces are at play to always draw us, always draw the church away from Jesus, and because of that, we're always in a type of crisis, and we should always be praying. You know, I, I thought about the Lord's Prayer a lot this week. It was intentional that we said it together this morning, and I, I was reading the beginning of that passage where the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. That's, they're, they're wanting to know, how can we pray? And I was thinking, in my almost 20 years of ministry, I don't think anybody has ever asked me that. I've been a lot of, asked a lot of questions. Can you teach me about marriage and parenting? What, what, you know, explain dinosaurs. Where did they come from? Where did they go? What happens to my cat when, when my cat dies? To which I say, cats go to hell. I'm sorry. Dogs, I think I can imagine in heaven, not not cats, but nobody has ever asked me, Jim, teach me to pray. I mean, it's a pretty fundamental part of our faith. So what, what is it that's so different about that culture 
that, that one of the main things they want to ask Jesus is how can I pray effectively and fruitfully, but no one in 20 years on any country, state that I've lived in has ever asked me that question. And so there are probably a lot of things, but two of the things that really pop out to me first is our affluence as a culture. Why would we pray, give me this day my daily bread when I can go to Publix and buy whatever it is that I want? And if Publix is too expensive, Aldi can provide the same thing at a cheaper price. And if I, I may, you know, and, and that's the food that we bring home and prepare, but we can go to Chick-fil-A and buy it already prepared and be having eaten it by the time we get home. So our affluence, it, 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 it changes some of our felt needs. You know, we can literally be entertained at any moment of the day. There's always something to entertain us and draw us away from prayer. You know, even if we, you know, we decide we need to pray, whether, you know, even, let's just take silently or individually for a moment. We, we need to pray, we wake up, we, we plan on praying, and then there's a ping on our phone that alerts us, alerts us that there is a new dance crave on TikTok or Instagram. Well, that's a, that's a tough decision. Surely the Lord's gonna understand this is new. This is a dance crave. And we'll, we'll come back to prayer. We'll watch this and inevitably that becomes this black hole of things that entertain us and draws us away from prayer. This is a part of the affluence of our society that we have thousand dollar machines in our hand at every moment. John Piper, he has this quote that resonates with me. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. How many of you have heard of Paul Miller who wrote A Praying Life? Okay, all right. Not many, so good, I get to introduce you to somebody. Paul Miller, he wrote this book, A Praying Life. It's a phenomenal book on prayer that I highly recommend. At our former church, we brought him in to do a seminar on prayer. And he began the seminar before really even introducing himself by saying, well, let, let's just pray. And so we started to pray silently. And time went on and on. And, and literally, people had run out of things to pray for. They're opening their eyes, kind of acting like they're not, but they're looking at other people like, am I the only one that ran out of things to pray? Do you know how long? He, he, it was intentional. You know how long he had us pray as, as a body? Four minutes. In four minutes, most of the church had run out of things to pray. It was more time than most of the church knew what to do with, with prayer. And he says in his book, if you are not praying, it may well be because you're quietly confident that money, time, and talent are all you need in this life to overcome. Those are products of our affluence. But more to the point, I think, of this passage. Why would we pray together when we live in a culture that has told us that our spiritual lives are private matters? Starting in the 1700s with the rise of the Enlightenment, we were told that, that spirituality, that's a private thing that you do at home, that you do individually. Yes, you can pray if it makes you feel good. You know, it can be kind of a therapeutic thing that you do, but, but we're not here thinking that we're really changing anything by our prayers. That, that began in the 1700s in Europe and has spread all over the West. But that's clearly not the way the early church is looking at prayer. The early church has gathered the whole church. Luke says that the whole church. We know thousands of people comprise the church in Jerusalem at this point. They're gathered presumably in homes all over Jerusalem praying earnestly for Peter. 
We, we focus in in this passage on Mary and, and her house that we know is a larger house. So we're guessing 60, 70 people in her house alone are prayed. They're gathering. They're petitioning the Lord in some very specific ways. And so this is where we get to look at their corporate prayer and, and learn some things that hopefully can help us be a praying church. So how they prayed. First, they prayed together. You know, stating the obvious a little bit, but they didn't, they didn't just put the word out the way that we might on Facebook or Twitter or email groups. Just, you know, tonight as you're going to bed, pray for Peter, he's in jail. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. There's a place for that kind of individual prayer, but not instead of this corporate gathered type of prayer. So why is this? Why is it that gathered corporate prayer is an important thing to do? What made the early church decide we're not going to just pray individually, we're going to come together and petition the Lord together? You know, there's some people who would say, well, it's because there are more prayers being extended. More people, more prayers, more likelihood God's going to listen as if it's like some petition that if we get enough signatures on it, then the authorities are going to come and listen to what we have to say. Well, if that were the case, that's really bad news for small churches. <laughs> but that, that isn't at all why God cares about corporate prayer. God cares about corporate prayer because there's something about the unity of the church and the unity of all the individuals gathered that God loves. Whether we're talking about three people gathered or whether we're talking about 3,000 people gathered, there's something about the unity of the church that is really important to the God of the Bible. When we, we look at Romans, which is Paul's uh, longest, probably most famous letter, it is not, as many people would tend to think, Paul's systematic theology. It is not a systematic theology. Romans is a letter calling for unity in that church. That's the main point. And a little bit to raise support to go to Spain. That's the main point, though. 1 Corinthians is a letter about unity, church unity. And Jesus tells, us, tells the other church, the early church and us, that it is through our unity that the unbelieving world is going to know something about him. Unity is something that is vitally important to God. We see it all over the pages of the Bible. And fun fact, I learned this week from our RTS students, something I did not know, the vast majority of prayers that we read in Acts are corporate. They're, they're groups of people gathered. They're not individuals. There, there are a couple instances, but the vast majority of the prayers, as opposed to the Old Testament and the Gospels, the vast majority of the prayers in the early church are corporate. There's something about the unity of the church that is both modeled and accomplished through us coming together and praying together with a common heart and a common goal not instead of private prayer, but in addition to it. So, they prayed together. Second, they prayed earnestly. It probably was not safe for the early church to be out and walking around the streets at night. So, every commentary I read noted probably after work, they went ahead and went to Mary's house or whatever house they were going to while it was still safe. They got there and in so doing, probably sacrificed a meal to be able to come together and pray. They probably sacrificed uh, sleep. We have every reason to believe they sacrificed sleep. They sacrificed their times. They came together with earnest prayer, prayer that was from their heart. And again, I, I think back to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a kind of model of, of how we're to pray, but in the Lord's Prayer, there, there are two extremes that we need to avoid. And the first 
extreme that we need to avoid is this tendency to think of the Lord's Prayer as just this rote prayer that we pray like a Harry Potter or Doctor Strange spell. Like we do it and then it somehow makes things better. That's not, that's not the intention of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is modeling how we should pray. It's not this magical spell that we cast and things get better. So when, I, when we lived in Mississippi, there, there was a, a popular documentary on Netflix called Last Chance You. Has any, anybody in here heard of Last Chance You? Erickson, all right, and you. All right, Last Chance You. It is a, it's a story uh, following East Mississippi Community College and their football program. They have the, the best junior college football program in the United States. And their coach, they follow the team and they focus in on the coach. And not only is he a good coach, he has another skill as well. He can string together obscenities in a way that is an art form. I, I mean, you can't even get, get offended by what he's saying because you're in so in awe of the way that he can take all these cuss words and, and use them in ways you've never heard before. They can be verbs, nouns, adjectives, articles. I mean, he just has, he is able to bring these guys to the lowest spots through the way that he uses all parts of the English language. No part is too arbitrary to put a cuss word in. And after just, dog cussing these guys and in uh, unique fashion. They all come together, and this is so Mississippi. They take a knee, the hats come off, they put their hands on each other, and that coach then leads them through the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, I, you know, I just have to admit, feel like that's missing Jesus' heart in giving us the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's not just something that we do detached from all other elements of our life. It is to inform all elements of our life in both individual and corporate prayer. So that, that's one extreme. The other extreme is going into prayer, heaping voluminous, empty phrases on the Lord as if we, we totally change the way that we speak, then God's going to listen. And this is actually the way that Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So when we pray, you know, if we decide all of a sudden we're going to add all these dear lords in there, we decide we're going to speak King James English and add all the thys, thous, these, uh, we're going we're gonna to raise our voice to a dictative and octave that we never use because this is our prayer tone and now God is going to hear us. Like there, there are ways in our culture that we do a similar thing by heaping voluminous empty phrases of God thinking that he is going to hear us then. But what we're taught, what we see in this passage and what we're taught is we're to pray earnestly and earnestly means from our heart. We are who we are and we go to God and pray to him understanding the different categories that we're given in the Lord's prayer, the way that he wants us, the categories, the types of prayers he wants us to pray. So that is what this church is doing. They prayed earnestly. And then third, we see that they prayed expectantly. I have to believe that anybody who gives up a meal and any amount of sleep is expecting that that is worth their time in some fashion. They're expecting that, that God hears their prayers, that he at least can, if not will, respond to their prayers. And this is at the heart of Jesus' first line of the Lord's Prayer. What does he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So what we see is we're, we're praying to a king over a kingdom, a heavenly kingdom who is actively working to bring that kingdom into our lives and into this world. That's who we're praying to. And if that's who we're praying to, we can pray expectantly. We can assume that our prayers are heard. We can assume that God is going to do something with those prayers. When Angela and I, I think it was late 2007, we moved back from Italy and we piled literally everything we own in this container, you know, that gets shipped overseas. It went to the port of New Orleans where it then sat. And we couldn't get our stuff. It was just stuck in the port of New Orleans waiting for customs to go through it. But then we got uh, an email that said that customs is going to charge us $500 a day for every day they don't get to our container which is totally the government working for you. They're financially incentivized to not do what they're supposed to do. But anyway, that wasn't gonna fly with us. We didn't have $500, much less $500 for weeks on end. So by in God's providence, we happen to know one of the US senators from Mississippi. So we got on the phone, we called our senator, the senator called the port, and that container was released the next day. Yeah, we, and when we called Senator Wicker, we had every expectation because of who this man is that we, we knew his character and we knew his power in our culture, in our society. We had every expectation that that phone call was worth making, that he could do something. And this is just a senator. This is just a mere human. How much more then is this true of the God of the universe? We have every reason to be expectant when we ask God for something in our lives. Even so, I think it's interesting, and I do think everybody prayed expectantly in this passage, they're still really surprised when it happens. <laughs> and that's okay, that doesn't mean they weren't expectant. You've prayed expectant prayers, and when it happens, you're like, oh my goodness! I mean, I expected it to happen, but not this way, not this fast. I, I, I'm just still amazed. So in this passage, we see it in two different ways. First, we see Peter, he's in prison, and this angel shows up to him. And we read that Peter is sleeping. When the angel arrives, this great light shone in the cell. Uh, I think he he had actually prod Peter, but for some reason, the, the, the guards never woke up. Peter woke up and he couldn't believe what he was seeing. And I have to assume he was praying too. And he looks at this angel and he thinks it's a vision. And the angel's like, no, I'm real. You, you need to get out of here with me. And his chains come off. The cell door opens. The guards stay asleep. And the angel says, come out with me. Follow me out of this jail cell. And Peter follows. And I, I do want to pause right here. Because we have something miraculous. We have an angel showing up as a means for the answer of their corporate prayers. And I think as 21st century Western Americans, we can... We struggle to internalize this the right way. You know, at best, we can read over this passage and think, well, that was cool. I mean, it was, it was nice that God did that back then, but, but he doesn't really do that thing now, kind of thing now. I shouldn't expect that. Or at worst, we read it and think, that was a bunch of hogwash. <laughs> I mean, it's ancient people. They didn't know how things worked. But I really believe, A, that this really happened as we read, and I believe that God still does things like that today. Now, for whatever reason, I, I can make guesses, but I don't know for sure. This kind of thing seems to happen in other parts of the world more than here, but it does, in fact, happen. And as Christians, we've got to have categories as we pray expectantly for this kind of thing to happen. I knew a minister in the Middle East, and he and his church were praying for a people group not terribly far away 
in, in which they did not know of a single Christian. They didn't know of one Christian in this people, people group. And this, this people group was too closed and too dangerous to send anybody in, so they just prayed. And the way I remember him telling me, it was like a year that they were praying, God, we don't know how this will work. Give us a convert from this people group that we've, we've never heard of anybody even hearing the gospel, much less believing the gospel. And after, I think it was about a year of praying this prayer, in the town where this minister lived, this man came into the town. From, he, he was traveling from his hometown, and he walked into a mosque. And he walked in, and he sat down toward the back, and there was a Christian preacher preaching the gospel, which I don't fully understand, but I'm told it is a common practice in the Middle East to use mosques for reasons of contextualization and legal reasons in some places to operate as a church, and it works in some parts of the Middle East. So this man walks into the mosque. He hears a Christian preacher, but he didn't know what's being preached because he does not speak his language. And just before he stood up to leave because he didn't understand anything, this guy behind him leaned forward and said, hey, do you want me to translate for you? To which he thought, yeah, I'd love to. How did you know that I didn't speak the language? But whatever, yeah, that'd be great. Like, I'd translate the message. So he translated the whole message, and this man not only under, understood this message, but he was moved by this message of Jesus Christ. And after the, the final prayer of this pastor, this man turns around to thank his translator, and inches behind his head is a wall. He was on the last row. Literally, behind his chair was the wall. No human could have possibly come in there and translated that message. Was that an angel? I think it was. Was it an answer to these people's prayers? Yes, because you know where this man was from? That one people group. And he was then connected to that one church. And he was discipled and sent back to his people. Things like this happen. We, we have to have these categories when we pray expectantly, asking God to do anything within his power, which is everything, to accomplish his means here on earth. So, going back to the passage, Peter, now free, he goes to Mary's house where, unbeknownst to him, Lots of people were gathering. He knocks on the door. They send the servant Rhoda out. Rhoda gets to the door, sees Peter, and screams and runs back to the people. <laughs> she, it, she doesn't even open the door for Peter. She, she just is so in shock. She runs back, tells everybody, Peter's at the door. They're praying expectantly, but they respond, that can't be. <laughs> that, it can't be Peter. You can't have seen Peter. He's in prison. He's chained to guards. Maybe they executed him, and what you're seeing is Peter's ghost right now. So they were, they were praying expectantly, and still, when the miraculous happens, it was hard for them to believe that God had actually done it. It doesn't mean that they weren't expectant, but we can be surprised. I, I don't fault them. I've had prayers like that in my own life, that I feel like I was really praying expectantly, and God answered it, and I'm shocked. <laughs> Shouldn't be, but I am. One of my good friends, a guy who actually officiated my wedding, when one of his children was three, this boy was diagnosed with leukemia. He was diagnosed in, in, at one hospital in Memphis, then they transferred him to a specialized hospital in Memphis where they, they then confirmed the diagnosis and they said, well now you need to go to the special children's cancer hospital in Texas. And in between the second hospital and the third hospital, this group of people came over to his house, or they, they had talked first and they said, I wanna, I wanna come over and we wanna pray that that cancer would be gone. They weren't praying anything short of no more cancer in this child. 
And my friend was like, I, I know I, we're supposed to have categories for this. I was, I was a little outside of what I'm used to, but I, I'm encouraged by their faith and I prayed the same thing. God, would this cancer be gone? They went to that children's cancer hospital in Texas and there was no more cancer. And the doctor said it can't be a misdiagnosis because we had two different hospitals who confirmed this thing and this cancer is gone. They were praying expectantly and still rather shocked when it actually happens. So here we get to a really important question. If we're praying to a truly sovereign, omnipotent God, why pray at all? I mean, why, why pray? If God's going to, he knows what he wants to do, he's going to do what he wants to do, why should, we, I mean, how are our, our prayers anything more than fluff? And some people would go so far as to say, don't believe in a truly sovereign, omnipotent God because that is going to hinder your prayer life. If you think there's a sovereign God, you're going to think your role in that process does not mean anything and it will hinder many aspects of your Christian life, including your prayer life, which is totally unbiblical. Now, I'm, I'm going to say something that might make some people feel uncomfortable. I do not believe Peter would have been released if that church didn't pray. I, I don't believe that. Does that make God not sovereign? Not in the least. Not in the least. Prayer is the way that God has sovereignly decided that he is going to work the way he wants to work in this world. He has decided he is going to give us supernatural promptings and a supernatural power to accomplish his will on this earth. And that should make us want to pray all the more. We should, because we know that the feelings and desires we have when we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, they're not from nowhere. And that when we go to God and petition the king of the universe for this thing, that he is really there and really able to work according to the powers and the promises of his will. And just think about how, how glorified God is in our own midst when we come together and we ask him for something like release Peter expectantly but we have our limits of our own expectations, and then it happens. How much are we all drawn closer to him and edified in that process? Just this week, Angela and I had something that was stressful for us, and it wasn't lost on me that God had had me for two days looking at prayer. So, all right, God, I, I want to be, I want to at least be really trying to do what it is that I'm teaching. So we decided the stressful thing, we were going to pray about it. We didn't pray a rote prayer. We didn't engage our prayer voices. We just prayed. And within 24 hours, that thing just went away in, in a rather cool way. And it was a good just reminder for me and what I'm teaching this week that this is not something academic or historical. This is real. And... The reason that we can pray expectantly, it brings us to the last thing that we see about corporate, corporate prayer, and it's that they prayed to the God of the Bible. This is maybe the most important thing to know about prayer. The Lord's Prayer begins with our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I want to look first at that word hallowed and then at that word Father, and we're going to be done. So hallowed, it means to set him apart in our minds and our hearts as the greatest, most beautiful, most important being in this universe. Isaiah 40, 17 says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted, to, they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. 
compared to his surpassing glory. That is setting apart his name as hallowed. Another way to say it is vindicate your name, God. From all this mess that we experience down here, vindicate your name. This is what God says through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I have vindicated my holiness before their eyes. What he's saying is I want my name to be hallowed by them. This is why good vibes and nice thoughts fall short. This is why general prayers to an unknown God will not suffice. It it won't work. It is not the God of the Bible. The one God of the universe hears our prayers because of Jesus Christ. There's a chasm between us and God because of our sin, and only Jesus can deal with our sin. By going to the cross and taking on the wrath of God that we deserve and handing us his righteousness, he makes us not enemies anymore, but children children of the beloved God who can come to him and ask him for absolutely anything, not because we merit it, because Jesus did, and we're now seen every bit as beloved child as Jesus Christ himself. The only reason that we can pray, the reason that we can only pray through Jesus is because only Jesus deals with our sin. There is no other worldview that deals with our sin in a way where we can come and have this kind of access as a child. Some of you parents, or maybe when you were parents, or maybe grandparents, you know, you, you may wake up in the middle of the night and turn over, and one of the kids has found, their grandkids found their way into your room, sleeping there between you and your spouse. That's okay. They have that kind of access to you. Now, if you woke up and saw Matt Kenyon there, he didn't have that kind of access. That wouldn't be okay. You'd probably call the police. We'd probably fire him. He doesn't have that access But when we're made children, children of God, we have that kind of access to God the Father. We should want to go to him and ask him for anything that we might need. Now, not everything we might want. We're talking about needs here. You can ask for a Ferrari or a winning sports team. I don't have any verses that that say you're going to have much fruit in praying for those things. But the things that we need, God is going to answer. He's going to provide for us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, if you then who are evil, talking about parents, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts, good things to those who ask Him? As parents, our main job is to bless our children. We want to provide for our children. We want to make our children safe. We want to train them in a way that is going to make them fruitful in this world. But all of us are going to we're prone to underbless and neglect, neglect them at times. We're prone to overbless and spoil them at times. But as children of the Most High, our, our, our God in heaven, our Father in heaven, He's perfect. He doesn't neglect us, He doesn't spoil us. He gives us everything that we need when we need it. So sometimes that's going to be by changing the external things, like Peter. They prayed as a church, and their external situation changed. It's not mentioned in this passage, but sometimes it would be internal things like comforting James's family when they've just had a dear son, brother, cousin executed, giving that family internally the, the endurance and the peace and the mercy and the grace and the love that they need to go on. 
But either way, we have a Father in heaven who will not turn us away, who will hear us as his children. Because through Jesus Christ, he is our Father, and his name is hallowed in the hearts of this church. And I do want to be clear, God is not an errand boy. God is not some servant on the other end of of an intercom. This is a father who wants to bless us. He wants to bless us with his presence. He wants to bless us with his glory. And he wants to be hallowed in his hearts, not just because it's good, not just because that's the way that it should be, but because the way that it should be is good for us, that he would be hallowed in our hearts. And so here's where I want to land. If we see God for who he is, the natural result is we're going to want to pray. We're going to want to pray. When we experience the blessing of God's presence in our life, not only are we going to want, are we going to, want to pray, we're going to not want all the things that hinder that kind of presence of God in our life. We're going to want to run from the busyness. We're going to want to run from our sin because once we experience God in that way, we want him. It draws us and we want to pray. So, so what I'm finishing with here isn't about what we do, it's about our hearts. I, I want to finish a little different way than I normally do. I, normally, I finish and we have a time of response. Well, I'll talk about giving or joining the church or whatever. We're not going to do that today. I want to finish by praying. Praying silently as a church that we would want to pray. I don't want to finish this sermon with, a, with a, a, an event of corporate prayer for you to come to. Not yet. Don't think I'm not thinking about that. But I want us to start with our hearts. I want us to pray that we would want to be a praying church and that through that praying church, God would work mightily in our midst.